Just, uh, we humble ourselves before you. We're thankful for this time. Uh, we pray that you would guide our time, that we would, as we do this overview study, that we'd be attentive to the details you want us to be attentive to. And uh, I pray that it wouldn't just be knowledge that we're gaining in this, but that somehow through time in your word that we could grow in genuinely putting our, our faith and our trust in you, um, that this would be a time that actually has an effect on our relationship and our walk um, with our God. So we, uh, we pray that tonight uh, humbly, but also boldly and with confidence, knowing that um, that would glorify you and that that would honor you. Lord, I also want to just pray for uh, Barbara Underwood tonight. Uh, she uh, lost her son this week. I pray for Tammy. I pray for kids. I pray for their whole family as they mourn that loss. And I uh, pray that you would comfort and encourage them. Um, Lord, we're thankful to have this time each week. And uh, we surrender it to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open up to the book of John. Uh, these studies are, um, we, we've gotten through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then after tonight we'll be done with John. But uh, just a reminder, they're overview studies, so the goal isn't necessarily to go deeper in the book as much as it is to get a new perspective of the book that helps us in those times when, when we go deeper into it. So um, last week, a little bit of recap, from Jesus' time on earth, what do we know about opinions regarding him while he was still alive? They varied, yeah. There, some people would argue that um, you know Jesus was just real well liked, and then it just kind of got carried away. And after he died, people made more of him, and over time, it was like a legend or something. And the reality is, is that when Jesus was alive, um, there were um, a variety of different opinions regarding him and his ministry and what he said and how he moved. So um, it's good for us to understand that. The first time, you know, when Jesus, the, when Jesus was on earth, that um, there, were, uh, there were lots of different reactions, kind of similar to the reactions you get when people find out you're a believer. Um, some embrace that, some are excited about that, some are discouraged by that and don't really appreciate uh, you sharing that with them. And so it was the same way for him. So was opposition to Jesus strong or weak according to John's gospel? Was opposition to Jesus strong or weak? It was very strong. Yeah, it was very strong. In their opposition, well, who opposed him? Yep, Jewish leaders. His own disciples at a, at a particular point. They were not happy with what he had said. It was hard sayings. His own family, yeah. And so... For those who opposed him, uh, what did they try to do in their opposition? What actions did they try to take in their opposition? Yeah, they accused him of having a demon, so they lied and slandered. What else did they do in their opposition? Yep, family tried to get him to come home because he lost his mind, just come on home. What other actions did they try to carry out? Yeah, they tried to kill him, but it wasn't his time. You always see that they pick up stones and somehow Jesus gets out of there. They tried to arrest him. Um, what did they do to Lazarus? How did they celebrate Lazarus's being brought from death back to life? 
yeah, let's give him death again. So they, they were so opposed that when he brought Lazarus back to death, there were some who said, let's go find Lazarus and kill him in case um, this, this is carried out any further. Was Jesus particular about who he was? Was Jesus particular about who he was? Yeah, yeah, specific? Absolutely, absolutely. And the reason that's important as we're studying these accounts that look back at exactly what Jesus said and what he said about himself in particular, it's important to understand that Jesus was very, very clear, very, very, very particular, specific about who he was. It wasn't... He wasn't, um, the goal wasn't for people to just maybe figure it out along the way or to figure it out after he died or to figure it out after he conquered death. He was, from the get-go, referred to himself as the Son of God, referred to himself having the glory of God, referred to himself in a special relationship with God as a father is to a son. And so um, it's good to know that Jesus was really particular about himself. So if you have a conversation with someone and they're like, well, you know, Jesus was kind of, he was cryptic and he said things and people just assumed it. No, that's not true at all. He was in fact very, very particular about being the son of God and having the power of God. What was the cultural context in which Jesus was proclaiming to be God? What was some of what was going on during that time? Who's in charge? Rome. Who was not in charge? Israel. How did Israel exist within Rome? What, what were some of the things going on there? Yes, Israel was occupied by Rome, but they had a working relationship. What was that relationship? Be peaceful. Mm. Pay your taxes. What did Rome allow Israel to do? There was some self-governing. Yeah, they had their own, um, they had the Sanhedrin. They had judges that would judge the Israelite people. They had the temple that, um, where they could worship the, what they would refer to as the one true God. So was Israel monotheistic or polytheistic? Israel. Mono. And was Rome is monotheistic or polytheistic? Very, very, very polytheistic. And so you have this culture that exists within this other culture where Rome, who's in charge, has just gods and idols all over the place. There was no, no limitations to the number of gods that they had. Yet, Rome, or yet Israel within Rome was very, very particular about there is one true God. And so, you know, for us, it's a little different because when we talk about God, there's not, um, there's just some people believe, some people don't, some people think it's God is what you make of Him. Um, there's all kinds of different beliefs that we have, but, but during this time in this culture, when you talked about God, it was common for people to see themselves as created and very different from their Creator God. And that was just common sense, common knowledge during that time. That's important to understand because when people start calling Jesus God in that context, it's, very, it's far more significant than if, um, if they didn't have that perspective. So we're going to dig into that a little more in a bit. In Matthew, we consider Jesus as the son of David. 
In Mark, we consider Jesus the Son of Man. In Luke, we consider Jesus as the Son of Adam. And in John, we consider Jesus as the Son of God. Our outline, which we started last week, was what John says we should believe, which was the main focus last week. And then this week, we're going to be looking more closely at why we should believe and the results of believing. So the connection back to that last question, the Jews had a good system working for them, though they were under Roman rule. And what we have to understand is Jesus threatened that system. The, the, the good thing they had going for him, Jesus threatened that. So look at John eleven forty five. This helps us to understand kind of how Jesus is claiming to be God could threaten the system that Israel had going for him under Roman rule. In 11.45 it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now anytime you see in, I just want you to circle it. It says in him, because we're going to be coming back to that. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And, that, and those two little verses, it's, it's important to understand, there was, there was no difference of perspective in what Jesus had done. They all saw what Jesus had done. Some believed in him, some went and tattled on him to the Pharisees. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish court system, the judges. They gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Circle the in there. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What they believed was that if, G, if people believed in Jesus as God, as the Son of God, as equal with God, as act, the one who gives access to God, if they, let me ask the question, if they have access to God through Jesus, how does that change standard Judaism? Yeah, no need for a priesthood, right? How else does it change? Oh, yeah. Now, we've got an economy being affected here, right? Because they've got all the money changers in there. So the money changers would, would allow it to where you could go and you could buy what you need for your sacrifice. They could make money. It was a good system. Um, it was sort of like uh, the idolatry that was going on in the Old Testament where the, the builders of idols got upset um, at the prophets because um, they were losing their jobs. So here, what we have is if they have access to God through Jesus, they don't need the temple, the, the tabernacle set up. They don't need the priest to intercede for them. It's a new ball game, And the leadership is not looking at what Jesus is saying and saying, eh, no big deal. I, I want you all to understand that. The, the system's been in place for over a thousand years. You can imagine there were people who challenged it over the years, right? I mean, you can, there were probably people who challenged Israel and challenged the, their, uh, their, their system of laws. And over the years, there, there were probably ups and downs, people who posed a little more of a threat, a little less of a threat. But here, the, the high council, the Sanhedrin, is looking at Jesus and saying, if they believe in him, 
Rome will take away what we know as Judaism. Rome will take away what we know to be life as a Jew. Rome will take away everything that's been normal for us and for our fathers and for our grandfathers and for our great-grandfathers. Generations of normal life for the Jew would change if they had access to God through his son. And so we need to see how threatened the Jews were and how threatened the Pharisees felt during this time because it's very significant. It wasn't... The more we dig, and, and the way we see these little details, even, yes, we're digging, and yes, we're bird's eye view, it, it seems counterintuitive, but just go with it. The more we see of these things, the more we just explode these really, really wafer-thin arguments about Jesus being a good guy, or Jesus, you know, it just it got blown out of proportion. The strongest Jews, the most powerful Jews, greatly feared how people were responding, so much so that they said Rome will take away everything we know to be normal. So, look at 12, 42 through 43. It says, Nevertheless, many even of these authorities believed in him. Go ahead and circle in. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Well, why was it a problem for a Pharisee to be put out of the synagogue? Or or authority, sorry. Why was it a problem for an authority in Israel to be put out of the synagogue? Yeah, yeah, that'd be like being put out of everything you ever knew. Like if you had one spot where you had power one spot where you had access to God, to be put out of that, for them, it would be like, I mean, just imagine for a moment, if someone came to you and said, you've been here, you've been a member at Crosspoint Fellowship, and um, you've been here for, let's say, five years, and you're here on, you know, consistently, you're part of a life group, just imagine what it would be like if someone came up and said, you're not welcome back at Crosspoint Fellowship ever again. Imagine the, the impact that would have, right? I mean, you'd be like, well, gosh, I've, I've got a lot of friends here, and I've, I've, I'm here on Sundays, my, my children have grown up here, and my life group, and there's a lot of things that would be affected in your life, accountability, transparency, um, discipleship, um, teaching, preaching, leadership, service within the community, connections to other things in the community. If just by saying, you can, you're not allowed back at Crosspoint Fellowship ever again. That's just Crosspoint Fellowship for people who've been here a few years. Imagine the Jew being put out of the synagogue. It would be far worse than we could imagine. It would be far different. I mean, everything that they hold to be true, the place where they engage God with one another, the place where they have the priests, the place where they have the access, the place where things make sense in life, the place where they have a sense of something other than just what they see every day, they would be put out of it. And it would be a significant thing, even more significant than us being said, you can't come to this church anymore. There's like a, you can throw a rock and hit 10 more church buildings from our parking lot. But it would still be difficult. It would have been more difficult for them in this setting. So it says, nevertheless, many of even the authorities believed in Jesus. 
But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And listen to this. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That was the problem. They got glory from man in that setting. They got approval. They got um, a sense of belonging from man that mattered more to them than God. So much so that their authorities of Israel and they're hearing Jesus' teaching and they're beginning to believe in him, not just believe what he says, but believe in him. Like They're not just saying, hey, this guy speaks truth. They're saying, hey, this is the son of God. That's how significant it is. The authorities of Israel are getting to that place of saying, I, I'm, be, I'm starting to believe in this Jesus. But you can see this struggle. I want us to just have a sense of that tension where they are hearing Jesus, they are seeing the miracles, they are hearing what other people are saying, and they want to believe in him, yet the glory of man is still tugging the other way, and so they're torn. I want us to have a real sense of this tension, because the reality for them, when it came down to it, was they kept their mouth shut about what they thought about Jesus, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Quick question, what is the glory that comes from God? What do y'all think that means? Yeah, seeking God's approval. Yeah, God's approval versus outward appearances of righteousness. What else? The glory of God. Glory that comes from God. What do y'all think that means? Eternal life. Yep. He sees Jesus' righteousness on us. In this setting, consider what it would have meant. I mean, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Supposedly, the whole purpose of the synagogue, tabernacle, temple, was, was a relationship with God, right? But here, what's revealed is that... It, It's not just that they had a choice and they screwed up. What is revealed in this setting is what their hearts were set on already. Where their hearts were already. What we see here is that they were in the synagogue and they didn't want to be put out, even though they were believing in Jesus, or beginning at least to believe in Jesus and listen and hear. What was revealed here is that they didn't want to stay in the synagogue because they cared more about the glory of God. They wanted to stay in the synagogue because they cared more about the glory of man, the glory that comes from man, the approval that comes from man, the, sa- the man saying, I'm satisfied and pleased with you versus God saying, I'm satisfied and pleased with you. So it could sound, if we don't see it rightly, it could sound like, well, they just, that was the only way they knew God. No, the problem here is that was the way they got approval from man. That was the way they felt um, uh, made righteous and made um, um, to be of significance. There's another word that I cannot think of right now, and it's like the third time today I can't find the word I'm thinking of, and it's driving me nuts. Um, But I want us to see that, that there was a significant tension there. So following Jesus meant no longer putting your faith in the law. Following Jesus would mean no longer putting your faith in Judaism. 
Following Jesus would mean no longer putting your faith in Rome and the approval of man. Following Jesus was just very, very significant in this culture. So what else should we believe? We're still on the what John says we should believe. Well, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to say a paragraph of stuff. And I want you all to know that we're, le- we're going to leave a lot on the table on this one. That's part of what these studies do. It leaves a lot on the table. If you feel led to go back and consider it, I- I'd encourage you to do that. But we should believe who the Messiah is. We should believe that he came to expose misunderstanding and disobedience. We talked about that a little last week. We should believe that he came to provide a sacrifice for the salvation of sinners. We should believe that he came to be the light of the world and that he came to be glorified by the Father. So now we're going to look at why we should believe. That's what. We should believe who the Messiah is, that he came to expose misunderstanding and disobedience. And he came to provide a sacrifice for the salvation of sinners. He came to be the light of the world and to be glorified by the Father. We should believe who the Messiah is. He came to expose misunderstanding and disobedience. He came to provide a sacrifice for the salvation of sinners. He came to be the light of the world and to be glorified by the Father. Those are all high water marks throughout the book of John. So that's what we should believe according to John. Um, Now we're going to look at why we should believe. Turn to John 20, 31. For those of you who have studied John or, you know, spent, you know, a decade in John as a church, you should know that this is the purpose of the book. So when we're talking about why we should believe, we should be considering closely what the purpose of this book is. And in John 20, 31, it says, now, we'll start in 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. It's interesting. The book of John is known as the book of signs, but John actually doesn't include as many of the signs and wonders as other gospel writers do, yet John's the book of signs. And, and it's, so John is the book of signs not because of the volume of signs, but because of the way he treats them because of the way he handles the signs and the miracles and the things that have happened. So I want us to understand that. It's the book of signs. It has less than other gospel accounts, but it's the book of signs because of what he does with them, how he, how he utilizes the signs, how, he, how God utilizes the signs um, through John's writing. So Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That is crystal clarity what the purpose of the book is and why um, we should believe. So my question then, if we dig a little deeper here, is what does the pronoun these refer to? I want to make sure we're all clear. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What is these? What are these? What is these? What are these? These are what? What? Signs. Right. Which would be, like, what are some examples of some signs? Healings? What else? What? 
Yeah, yeah. Bring people from death to life. That's a big one. What else? Fulfilling the prophecies. What else? Yeah, water to wine. That was the first one, right? That was a big one, right? So Dever says, we should believe because of the miraculous signs John has written about that testify to the authenticity of everything he's saying. So that gives us clarity, and I'm going to read it again. We should believe because of the miraculous signs John has written about that testify to the authenticity of of everything that he is saying. So there's something very special about the signs as, as John is recording them because they testify to the authenticity of everything that he is saying about Jesus. So this leads to a, nat- a natural question. What are the signs? And we've already covered some of them. You don't have to turn here, but just listen. In 2.11, Jesus changing the water into wine and at the wedding in Cana. So to be clear, Jesus changing the water into wine at the wedding in Cana is meant to testify to the authenticity of everything else that John has said about Jesus and what Jesus hopes for, what Jesus expects. In 3.2, there were miraculous signs that prompted Nicodemus' response. In 4.54, there was the healing of the royal official's son. In 6.2, we see healing of the sick. So those are all things that kind of naturally come to mind, but even in Jesus' time... The signs didn't bring the clarity that you might expect, right? I remember as a kid, when I started studying these, I was like, awesome. God, if you'll just show me like one miracle, I'll totally believe in you. That was my first thought as a kid when I saw, started hearing about people being raised from the dead and water being turned into wine and things like that and people's limbs being made whole and people who can't walk getting up and walking. My first thought was, we need some of those. Give me some signs because then I'll believe. As a kid, it was a natural jump for me to make. I remember being in my Sunday school class. So what if my thought was, as a kid, you don't have to be an adult to get here. Um, you can be a, a foolish child. <laughs> I thought, if that's true, why don't we see that anymore? Right? I mean, I was in fourth grade probably the first time I said that. If you expect me to believe water was turned into wine, how come we don't see any more water being turned into wine? If you expect me to believe that this guy was raised from the dead, how come we don't see any headlines about dead people being alive again? Because that would be a pretty big deal. I mean, we communicate better now than anyone else has ever communicated in the history of communication because we've got all these ways to do it. Why don't we hear about more miracles? So the natural inclination was, if I just saw one, I would totally believe everything God says, right? I want, I want you all to understand, that was the point of the miracles, originally. The an original purpose of the signs was that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ. But by Jesus' design, God's design through the Son... It's not meant to be the way we believe from that point on. It solidified what he said about himself. It solidified what he claimed about his sonship of God. But God's design was never that from here on out, I'm going to start with miracles and that's how we're going to do it. So if someone believes, it's because I'm going to blow their mind and freak them out one day and do something cool that they weren't expecting. That was not the way it was always intended to be. However, I want us to understand that was the way it was intended to begin. These signs were written so that you would believe. But what's interesting 
is that even during the time of these first signs, it didn't bring the clarity that you might expect. Look at 626, John 626. Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. He's explaining that he's the bread of life, which is important. As, as we dig, we say, oh, yeah, there's that sign too. Oh, and there's that sign too. Oh, and he fed all those people. Oh, and he did the bread, the fish and loaves thing. Oh, he walked on water. I mean, these signs are written so that you may believe. And in 626 it says, um, starting in 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will, have, will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. The purpose of the miracles was to show people that Jesus was the Messiah, that they might believe. But those same people were more interested in what they could get from the miracle or what they could get from the miracle worker. So when you approach Jesus for your miracle, you can you just see Jesus looking at him and saying, Look, I mean, we have this terrible tendency to just be excited if there's a crowd. So like someone could put in the paper... Uh, Crosspoint Fellowship will be handing out $100 bills on Sunday morning. Please be there promptly at 9. And we might get here at 9 and be 700 people and be like, this is awesome! But maybe they're all just here because they want a $100 bill that was put in the paper that, that we were going to be getting. So we get excited about crowds. And in fact, Baptists are notoriously terrible about judging all success by numbers. And in fact, if you talk to anyone who's at a church, the, one of the first three questions, how many, how many, how many members you got? How many are there? And it, I mean, if you say like seven, I've always wondered, I, like I always tell people like a real low number, how many you got out there? Like we got, man, like eight or nine really faithful people. Because I want to see if anyone goes, oh, like as if that's like, you're a loser then as a church person. What we see here is that you can see Jesus looking at them. They're coming to him for miracles. And you could see the disciples maybe saying, gosh, man, everyone's really starting to follow Jesus. But Jesus looks at them knowing their heart and says, you're missing the point. I've fed you with miraculous loaves and fish. All you want is more loaves and fish. They totally missed the point. I think that's probably why this wasn't his long-term plan for belief, that he would just keep doing miracles. Because people would be like, okay, well, I wish for more miracles, right? <laughs> How many wishes do I get? Like rubbing the genie lamp, let me get what I want. Because people would perpetually be going to him for what he gives rather than for who he is. And so Jesus is looking at them and saying... Uh, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It would be proper in that setting, I want us to see this, that Jesus could have said, you are seeking me because you saw signs. That's proper. Like that would have been okay for them. Like, hey, you did miracles. I'm going to keep following you. But what they were saying was, hey, you made more fish and loaves. I want more fish and loaves. It's a totally different approach to believing in Jesus or not. 
And so those same people were more interested in what they could get from the miracle or from the miracle worker than they were about following Jesus for who Jesus is, being the Son of God, giving access to God through himself. Some today argue that miracles simply never happen. Um, if you have, does anyone have any atheist friends? Ho- hopefully, some of us have some atheist friends. That'd be good. All right. All right. This week, we're all going to try to find an atheist and befriend them. Um, that'd be great. Um, but in, in conversations that I have, with, uh, particularly with, with atheist friends, um, they just get hung up on miracles. And it's just like, that is so stupid and so irrational and, and they'll categorize it. If you bring up something that's even remotely otherworldly or um, maybe sensational to them, they'll be like, okay, you've checked your brain at the door. Can we have a significant conversation without you checking your brain at the door? I mean, I remember someone talking about, you know, bring me a wagon wheel from the bottom of the Red Sea. Then maybe we can talk about all these other outlandish claims you have. I mean, I just Googled wagon wheel from the Red Sea, and they got plenty of them that they found. He's like, oh, anybody can make one of those. I'm like, the, the point is you don't believe. Like, the, you don't actually want the, um, the, the, the proof that leads you to Jesus. And so that's how it is here. So, so some today argue that miracles just don't happen, and they will completely um, dismiss all of the gospel because dead people don't come back to life, lame people aren't healed immediately, water can't turn to wine, uh, men can't walk on water, and they'll have a list of just this, that can't happen. So if I know those things can't happen, why would I waste any time with the gospel? But again, we keep coming back to this verse in John. It's interesting, 1147. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They're talking about the miracles and they're Jesus' biggest critics, and they're informed, educated people in the community. So to just try to dismiss that, oh, miracles can't happen, I'm just going to dismiss the whole gospel. When Jesus did those miracles, it struck fear in the most educated, informed people who were in leadership roles in that community because they saw it for what it was. So there's really not a big question on if the miracles happened because everyone who followed him and everyone who rejected him believed in what he did. And those signs were meant to lead people to belief. That was part of this beginning stage here. So look at 1147. Um, again, it just I want us to get this. The chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? This man, Jesus, performs many Signs. So all this leads to another natural question. What does it mean to believe? If we're talking about why we believe, does Jesus give us some insight on what it means to believe? And he gives us lots. He doesn't just say believe and leave you to figure it out. In the same way that he doesn't leave you to figure out who he was, he doesn't leave you to just try to wing it and figure out what it means to believe. Turn to John 6, 28. John 6, 28. He's just rebuked those who were coming to him for the miracles. And in 628, it says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? So if we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be saved, that's kind of the same thing they were getting at. Like, okay, what what does it mean to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, there's another in. Go ahead and circle it. I didn't have that one circled. It's embarrassing. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Look at one eleven. One eleven says, He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. From those two verses, particularly that second one, so we see there's this work, and the work is to believe, and then we see something in verse 1 about what it means to believe. From those two verses, um, how might we define believing? I'll read it again. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How can we define believing? Same as called told Nicodemus. What do you mean by that? Yep. And what what else in this verse particularly is linked with believing? Receiving. This is very important for us to, to get. Um, a kind, we could define believing as a kind of receiving, and apparently a kind of receiving that's worked out in our hearts by God, according to these verses. I mean, you see this. You, you didn't... You weren't, these aren't people who were born of blood. They weren't born of the will of the flesh. They weren't born of the will of man, but they were born of God. And so we see this picture of believing being painted from the beginning as believing is receiving Jesus because Jesus made you able to receive him. Jesus caused a change in your heart that would make you look at Christ and not reject him, but receive him. So let's look at an example. Look at 439. This is the woman uh, of Samaria. In 439, we see many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Oh, there's in. Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What a great picture of evangelism, right? You tell someone something about God that they've not heard. They say, Okay, okay, all right, I'm tracking, and then they go spend time with God. And then when they spend time with God, they come back to you and say, I believe not because of what you told me, but because of what I found, what I heard. I experienced God. He spoke to me. He knew the same things about me. He's reading my mail the same way he's reading your mail, and his words have had a profound effect. So we see something going on here in these verses. Um, Look at... uh, I want you to see the importance given to Jesus' words. Did you see that? They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. But they originally were looking at this just because of the words that he'd spoken to her. And importance of the words. Look at 538. And you do not have 
his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So we see a picture there of the connection between the word of God abiding in us and believing in him whom Jesus, whom God sent. And then look at 544. It says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory from the only God. A big part of the reason they were struggling with do I believe or not was because they cared so much about what everyone else thought. We've got to understand that's a, that's a significant struggle for anyone changing from whatever life they had to a new life they could have in Christ. There is a struggle that all these people are having about I like the glory that comes from man. I like being accepted. I like being affirmed. Those are the two words I couldn't think about earlier, and they just flowed out. It was so I like being accepted. I like being affirmed. I like belonging. And it's hard because this following Jesus changes everything, and the people that I run with now, the people that I do community with now, the people that I eat dinner with now, I really like the glory that they give me as, as a member of one of them. And so there's this continual struggle here that we see. It's, it's a consistent theme of people who are having that tension between walking according to the way they used to walk and now hearing the truth of the gospel and potentially walking in a new way. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I love the language there for a Jew. We're still talking about the only God. I'm not presenting a new God. We're talking about the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? There's this connection between belief, between Jesus' words, between Moses' words. They have to hear what is said, and they have to receive it. In 664, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. I mean, so we're trying to understand what does it mean to believe. And in order to understand that, we have to see that in 664, Jesus flat out said to him. There are some of you who don't believe. These are people who are standing around listening to Jesus. There are some of you who do not believe. Many make the mistake that belief is a light thing. Our culture is terrible about making the mistake that belief is some light thing. Or that it's something you do once. Or that it's just about one decision that you make that it changes eternity. Yes, one decision can change eternity, but if that decision doesn't change anything between the decision and eternity, it's probably not real. God wants us to see through Christ that belief is meant to endure. Belief is not a light thing. Saving belief is belief that lasts. Look at 831. 831 is terrifying. Well, all of chapter 8 can get pretty terrifying. We'll, we'll dig through some different parts of it. But at 831, we see this. Uh, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. We'll just stop there. We'll just take a look. Jesus said, If you believe, you will abide in my word. If you truly believe, if you're truly my disciples, you're abiding in my word. And then saving faith believes in Jesus. I've been having I'll circle the ends this whole time, but just to make sure we're clear, in 11:25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into 
the world. 1148, there's a lot. So after the death of Lazarus and after him being brought from death to life and God healing Lazarus, calling him out, and the bandages coming off, there was a lot of believing in Jesus in that same chapter. It's pretty cool because you see that sign. The sign was, it wasn't cheap. I want, I want us to understand because we got this weird view of miracles and signs. If people saw Lazarus come from death to life and they said, I'm listening to Jesus from this point on, that's amazing. That, there's nothing cheap about that. That's the whole reason that Jesus did it. The, the reason that that's one of the signs is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. So when we see this, we don't need to be like, well, I didn't, I didn't need to see Lazarus born or brought from death to life to believe. I just listened to my pastor when I was young. Like This, this is the way God intended for it to begin, this massive change that, that affected all of human history before and after until now. And so we see this picture here. Um, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then 1148, we see, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The concern was that wasn't that they would look at Jesus and say, uh, he speaks truth. I believe what he's saying. The concern was that they would, wouldn't just believe what he said, but, but they would believe in him. And then 1211, Again, we're just kind of bullet pointing this because it's all after Lazarus, 12:11. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And then 12:37, it says, "Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him." So there's a big difference between those who believed in him and those who did not believe in him. And then in 12:42, it says, "Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So there was a post-Lazarus flurry of belief in Jesus. So it wasn't just believing what he said, but believing in him. Dever has a note. He says, and this is significant. So follow me on this. Write, everyone write these two verses down, because I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen. John 16, 27 and John 14, 21. I would even encourage you, if you have a family or kiddos, to go and spend some time either with your, with your spouse, with kids, with friends, and compare John 16, 27 and John 14, 21, because I think it's one of the more important points of our study tonight. The, the word that most helps us understand what Jesus meant by believe is the word love. In 1627, Jesus said to his disciples, The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So Dever wants to point out in his notes that if we want to understand what it means to believe, we have to understand what it means to love. And he said the word that helps us to understand love is the word obey. Because in John 14, 21, we see whoever has my commands and obeys them he is the one who loves me. So, believe, love, obey. Believe, love, obey. How does this affect our lives? Are the, what are the implications? What are the conclusions we can draw? If, in fact, believing is loving and loving is obeying, how does that affect your life?
Ja. 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 Do you see the importance of abiding in the word? You can't express your love through obedience if you have no idea what he expects, right? You can't express your love through obedience if you have no idea what it is he expects and hopes for you to believe. So there's lots of implications here, and I want y'all to think about them in your own time. Because if I don't obey God in something, or I'm continually, perpetually disobeying God in something, I can't say, look, I completely believe God, I believe God's promises, and I, and I love God completely. I just can't obey Him. That's why some of these sermons lately have been so helpful in this area. Because if you're not obeying, it's a love issue. It's I love whatever I want to do or the result of whatever I want to do more than I'm loving God in this moment, right? So disobedience is a love issue, and we can trace that right back through these two verses to see that a love issue is a belief issue. So when you say, like, it's sort of the example that's been used by uh, Paul Tripp, when you can't say to someone, I didn't mean to say that. What you can say is, I didn't mean for you to hear me say that. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, everything that we find dear, we, we put hands and feet and, and eyes and ears and mouth to. So you can't say, I didn't mean to say that. What you could say is, I completely meant to say that. I just didn't actually want you to hear it because it reveals the ugliness that's in my heart when I called you what I called you or said to you what I said to you. So I want us to see that believing, loving, and obeying go together. So this whole, these are, this is written, these signs are written so that you will believe. You can't have belief if you don't love God and you can't say that you love God if there's no aim towards obedience every day. You're not earning his favor in that. You're proving something that exists between you and God that's accomplished only in Christ. It's the byproduct, it's the fruit, byproduct's not good, it's the fruit. It's the good, healthy, wonderful fruit that hangs from the tree of genuine belief that has love and obedience coming from it. So finally, we're considering the results of believing. Why did Jesus not come into the world to condemn the world? It says, he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why did Jesus not come into the world to condemn the world? They were terrible, right? Why didn't he say, I condemn you? He's Jesus, right? All authority is going to be given to him. All authority has been given to him. Why did he not come into the world and condemn the world? The law already had. The world stood condemned as it was. He didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. It'd be like me talking to my kid and saying, hey, I'm not condemning you guys. The state of your room condemns you. Like, as you stand, you're condemned because you haven't done what I've said. Or you've done, you know, you've disobeyed in any, any other way. So Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world already stood condemned by the law. So look at 3.18. says this. Whoever believes in him... So, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, 
And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So those people who love the glory of man more than they love the glory that comes from God, they weren't believing the light. They'd rather have the darkness. Even though Jesus affected them, they would rather choose the darkness. 1611 states that Satan stands condemned. And the implication is that all who follow his evil rebellion will share in his ultimate fate. So the result of believing is that we can be saved, and we're not just saved, but if we had more time tonight, we would see that um, we can be saved because Jesus did not save himself, right? That's what wrath, and does anyone know what propitiation is? Y'all have heard it. Does anyone can tell me what that means? Propitiation is what? Yeah, it's a wrath absorber. So because Jesus didn't escape the wrath of God, we can he took the wrath of God fully. Propitiation is a wrath absorber. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath for you, so you can actually be saved. When it comes to God's word, we have the choice to either believe it and let God, let Jesus absorb God's judgment on our behalf, or we have the option to reject his word and try to absorb it ourselves. Those are the two options. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. I, there's distinctions and connections that I want us to see. The emphasis I'm making on is the connections between them, but there are distinctions between them as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a. Sure. Yeah, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. And that's a good point. That, that those connections between believing and loving and obeying, um, the whole reason we have to have faith in God is that we fail. We need God every day. There's never a time where you don't need Him. So, this picture of obedience shown as a sign of love because we believe. It's not meant to be a guilt trip and a shame thing for you to say, well, if you ever disobey, you don't actually love God. That's not how it works. There's this constant process of sanctification that's going on where we need God, and God gives us what we need to obey Him. He gives us what we need to be able to produce that fruit and to show that we love Him and to show that we're going to obey Him. So we don't ever obey as just standalone proof. We obey as, stand, as um, absolute dependence upon God. And so even in those moments where there's utter disobedience, the reason you need to know this is because the other ditch is to say, well, I guess there's no way to be saved if I can't stop sinning. Well, the other ditch, you know, you want to bring it back in the middle, and it needs to be a reality of, I need Jesus every moment of every day, and I cannot presume upon grace and try to just sin more so that grace increases, Paul would say, by no means. However, if I'm being disobedient, I need to take a look at my love and my trust and my belief of God, and that's going to help me to come back into obedience if I can really trust the promises that He gives me. So if there's a promise that you're not believing, and you, you launch off into disobedience, and you do it over and over again, you need to come back and say, am I believing that promise? How can I believe it more? And you trust God to help you in that. I have a question. Has anyone, this is what we'll close with, we've got one minute. 
mainly because I'm okay going over by a few. Has anyone here come to faith by finding someone else's life in Christ appealing? Has anyone come to faith because you saw the work of Christ in someone else's life? Jerry? Yeah? Mary Jane? There you go. Is that, yeah? It's okay. Like, this isn't, you're not, everyone's real sheepish on this. Like, that, I'm hoping that some people, so, so, so here's what I want us to see. We can, we're supposed to have a life of love, but we also know that the message we have will be rejected by some, right? So we're, we're supposed to have this life of love that has this effect. So in 1334, and this is the last verse we'll read tonight, 1334 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Dever has a note that we're going to close with. He says this, There's a powerful dynamic at work between the Christian message and the Christian life. I think about half of you raised your hands and said, your journey with Christ was influenced by someone else's journey with Christ. About half of you kind of, kind of did this. There is a powerful dynamic at work between the Christian message and the Christian life because Christian lives should be attractive. Like I want us to understand that when we live the Christian life, we shouldn't hope that people look at us and hate it. Our hope is that it affects them, that there's something about it. Christian lives should be full of love not to mention grace and truth and joy. The message of the gospel is hard for all of us to hear at first. If you're sharing the gospel with someone and it's hard for them to hear, don't get mad at them. It was hard for all of us to hear. It's life-changing. It could mean a big difference between the glory you get from what you're used to and the glory that you're, you're putting your faith in that comes from God. So the message of the gospel is hard for all of us at first, but when people made in the image of God... However distorted the image has become, observe us living attractive lives that increasingly image the love of our Savior. They come to a place where they're prepared to hear this message, and they'll say, I want to hear more about that. I love that half of the room can confirm that and say, yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen it, and all of a sudden I wanted to know more about it. So I want us to just, we'll close in prayer, but that powerful dynamic at work between the Christian message and the Christian life. It is important that you say things rightly, and it's important that you live rightly. Because when you live rightly, there's a reflection that people see, and it want, it'll make them want to hear the words of Jesus more. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word tonight. Um, we're thankful for uh, the clarity that you give us and what belief is, and uh, the fuel for our faith. We're thankful for Christ that um, in our worst failures, we have grace and mercy. And as long as we have a borrowed breath, there is always an opportunity to, to, to come back and to, to love you and, and to repent and to walk in obedience. Lord, I, I hope that no one leaves here feeling full of shame or full of guilt in any of these things, but, but, but full of hope um, that there is um, these realities that exist only because of Christ, that there's this message that comes only from Christ. And I pray that um, 
each of us would grow more dependent upon him every day. I pray that we would never see a sign of strength or growth in faith to be less dependent upon God. That's completely backwards. Lord, I'm thankful for the signs. Um, I'm thankful um, that we get to see evidences of faith every day. I'm thankful that we see people changed. I'm thankful that you still heal. I'm thankful that you still give life. And I'm thankful that you use common and fragile vessels to accomplish your purposes. We love you, Lord. We humble ourselves before you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have kiddos, you should probably hurry more than normal to go get them.